0: So our topic for this morning is the Law of God, and that's we're following through if you are along with the, the Baptist Confession of Faith. And so that's just the chapter that we've come to this morning. And the Law of God is actually a, a chapter that I wrestled with probably more than many of the other chapters when I was first coming here. And so the way I thought we would work through this is just to just to talk with one another and think about some of the things that are um, that we ought to think through as we try to put together put together the Bible as a whole. The the law of God becomes a very important subject as you might think. The the Old Testament is sometimes even referred to as the law. Um, And the New Testament is doubtless full of law, and Paul talks about our salvation relative to the law, and it seems like everything hinges on law. And indeed, right from the very beginning of the creation of man, God gives Adam and Eve a a law. And so as we think about law and the various uses in the Bible, it can be perplexing at times if we don't have certain things straight in our mind. And so that's what we want to look at today, And we're going to focus, starting off where the Bible starts in Genesis chapter 2, where God first gives a command to Adam. So as we go through this, and we'll see how far we get, um, my plan was not to get into the Ten Commandments today, but if we have time, we will. I'm just going to read this, and uh, the kids can listen as well. This should be fairly simple. This is after God made Adam and Eve. He says in Genesis 2, verse 15, the Lord took the man, so specifically the man, Eve was not formed yet, and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, Very interesting. This is the first words of God to people. God has been speaking creation into existence, but in terms of what we have recorded, of what God directly says to Adam, this is the first thing that he says. And what is it um, categorized as in verse 16? And the Lord God commanded the man. God gave a command to Adam. And so the very first words of God are an imperative, something that we must do, or I should say that Adam must do, must obey. And so this is, if you will, a law. A law is something that someone gives to someone else to tell them how to live. Right, Teddy? If we have a law, that means you can do something and you can't do something. So this is, makes us think, okay, what, what are we working with when we think about law? Um, what chapter comes to mind if we think about law in the Bible? One chapter probably stands out out of all the chapters in the Bible on on law, at least in my mind maybe I'm crazy this morning Romans <laughs> maybe I think of Psalm 119 I just think of the whole the whole psalm exalting in the law and so uh, the psalmist over and over again can talk about the law or the precepts or the commands or the statutes or the testimonies of God being his delight. Do we remember a verse in there that says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path? At the very core of what law is, is it tells us what is right and wrong. It's a, it's a light for how we ought to live in the world. Can you think of going down a path with a light Teddy, if you didn't have a light, how would you know where to go? It could be hard in the dark, right? But with a light, you may know where to go. And this is what the law of God is like. It tells us what is right and wrong so that we may know what God expects. So if we started with a definition of law, it might be something like that. It's the light by which God condemns the wicked or leads the righteous. Or you could say it something like this. The law of God is the basis of human condemnation or acceptance with God. This is what the law is. So thinking about that definition of law then as we come to Genesis chapter 2, and God gives this command, I want us to think about a few things. I don't think I need to turn anywhere to to show this. We, We are familiar with the biblical narrative. Was this law of do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil sufficient to condemn all of humanity? To ask that in another way, why, why was Adam and Eve, why were they guilty before God? What did they do? They disobeyed God by eating of the tree, right? So this particular law, if you will, God set up in a way that was sufficient to show that they were guilty before God. It's not the whole of what we might think of as the Ten Commandments, or it doesn't contain in it all of the things that God has said. And yet, in this, on this one aspect, God was hanging all of his righteousness before Adam and Eve. It was, if you will, a, a one particular precept that displayed a full devotion to God. If you did not obey me in this one thing, you would not obey in anything, if you put it that way. So, on this one thing, the whole of human that all of humanity was condemned before God. Now let me ask you also, does does that particular law of do not eat of the tree, does that apply to us today? Do we have a tree of knowledge of good and evil standing in our backyards that we should not eat? No, right? This is fairly easy stuff, but what we're driving at is to say, God's standard of righteousness doesn't change. God's the basis for what is right and wrong doesn't change because God does not change. And God has put into creation what is right and wrong. And nevertheless, when God set up the garden, he placed man in the garden. He gave man one particular thing to test him. And so, when we refer to the law of God being present all the way in the garden, we don't read the 10 commandments handed down to Mo, or handed down to Adam in the garden we just see one particular precept, one token of obedience, if you will. This is one piece that Adam was to be faithful in, and nevertheless, in that, all of humanity was condemned, and with that garden passed away that rule. So what I'm driving at is that the, the law, the first commandment that we have where God says, do not eat of this tree, is not a permanent, abiding moral principle for all times and all places. It's It was one particular thing, and nevertheless, Adam was condemned as if it was a particular moral principle for all places and all times, because God had set up this one precept to test Adam. Now, we think think beyond that, though, with me. And was the law of God still present in Genesis? And when I say the law, I'm thinking of the fuller um, things, like do not steal and do not murder and do not commit adultery. Were those still moral absolutes in Genesis? Yes, right? When Cain killed Abel, it was still sin, was it not? What's that? Yes. Is lurking at your door and is desirous to have you, but you must rule over it? Yes. Um, is that chapter 4? there, I think it is chapter 4, I'm just scanning to find it, Um, and the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why is your face fallen, if you do well will you not be accepted, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Right, so will you must if you do well, will you not be accepted? There's a basis for doing right and wrong. God already defines that as sin. It clearly applies to murder. And so what we want to say is yes, the law of God is already present in Genesis. Even though we don't have the Ten Commandments given to us, all that God expects for righteousness is present in the garden. Now, how is it then present? How did Adam know about it? Was Adam and Cain and Abel and Eve were they blind to what God expected? Or did they know what God expected? the law is only revealed through God and they walked with God and had fellowship with God. So I would say that because God doesn't change and his 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 rules of morality don't change, they had it already. Yeah. Yeah, so you can reason back to say what we know of God is God's character doesn't change. And so if God's going to condemn them based on it, he's going to give them knowledge, right? To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Um, and so we could, we could reason backwards that way. Um, we could also look at what Romans says about the law and those who have it and those who do not. So turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 talks about two different people groups, those who have the law, and this is obviously jumping forward all the way past the Ten Commandments into the New Testament. And Romans chapter 2 says this in regards to those who are guilty before God. We're, we're familiar with what Paul is driving at when he gets into Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or Gentile. All are guilty before the law. And as he's driving this point home, he says... He says this um, in verse 12 of chapter 2. For all who have sinned without law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So he has two different people groups in mind, those who have the law and those who do not. And then looking forward just a little bit from there. Um, I'm scanning because I didn't write the reference down as I took notes here. Um, If someone sees it, let me know. It it says, and those who obey the law, not having the law, it's a law to themselves. Um, You who teach others, uh, that's in Romans 2. No, it's earlier in chapter two. I'm sorry, I went the wrong direction. Yep. So um, it says. Um, <laughs> it says um, I can't. I can never find things when I'm up here. I feel like I will turn right to it. But it says... Oh, thank you. That is exactly what I'm looking for. Thank you. Yeah, so I just didn't read far enough. Um, for is not the here's the law are justified. Yep, so verse 14. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show and this is the key one in verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their consciences also bear witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So Paul is reasoning here that even the Gentiles who did not have the law of God thundered down from Mount Sinai are guilty before God because the righteous requirement of right and wrong is already written on their hearts, And when they do right or when they do wrong, they're already judging themselves according to the law of God that is written on their hearts. So Paul is teaching us that the law of God is, um, all men are culpable and guilty before the law of God, even without the physical written law of the Ten Commandments. And so when we think about that in terms of the garden, what what we must understand then is that even if we don't see in the text of Genesis the Ten Commandments all spelled out, we must say that there is still guilt in Adam and that Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel had the law of God written on their heart. And that's what we're driving at as the, sort of the first basis. If, if you can get to a point where you accept the fact that there is a righteous standard of right and wrong, it doesn't change, and God wrote it on the heart of Adam, He goes a long way to getting everything else straight in the Bible when it talks about law. If we want to say, no, God's law is just particular things for particular times and it's a piecemeal work as you move through the Bible, and so, you know, in in Genesis there were certain things that are right and wrong, and later on there were certain things that are right and wrong, we'll miss the fact that God is always bearing testimony to his eternal moral law, even when he gives it in. Within certain precepts, right so do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil was one particular precept by which Adam showed that he was obeying the law of God and was faithful to god in uh, in when we get to the law in Leviticus, there are many, many laws which have passed away, but all of those laws were relative to god 's moral law that is a transgression of that law required a certain a certain sacrifice or a certain uh, restitution and so Tracing the theme of God's absolute and moral law through the Bible is going to be very helpful because a common question for Christians as we get to the Ten Commandments, which I think we'll turn to here shortly, is, well, what laws still apply to me? What things are morally binding? What do I have to do? And what is God revealing to me in the Ten Commandments? Because weren't they given to the Old Testament people? And how does that relate to the New Testament and those sorts of things? But if you start in the garden and get that right, that Adam had written on his law, written on his heart, the law of God, and that God gave him a particular precept by which to obey that, then when we come to the Ten Commandments, we'll see that God is not giving the Israelites a new law. He's not thundering down some... Um, new way that humanity is going to operate. He's merely revealing the way creation was made and what things already were to them when he come to Mount Sinai. So, just in summary, what we've said is the law of God is that light that condemns the wicked and leads the righteous. It was written on the heart of Adam, even though God gave it to Adam in a particular precept. Um, and I'm going to read just the way the, the Baptist confession kind of summarizes this, because... It is helpful, um, and we're going to touch on one thing then before we move on. So this is, this is how they try to summarize it, and I, I apologize if my stumbling confused this. Hopefully this um, makes it a little bit more vivid, that we're talking about the same concept. God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience written on his heart, and a particular precept of not eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And by which, by that precept, he bound him and all his posterity, that's his children, to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience. And then this is the the next part that we're going to get to. He promised life upon the fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of it. And he endued him with power and ability to keep it. So, if if you're with me so far that Adam had a law written on his heart and God gave him a particular precept to keep it, now I want to notice... Whenever there is a law, not just in the Bible, even in nature, even in life, if there's a law and it's enforced, it defines a relationship between two parties. You can make a rule and pin it on a wall, but it, if, it is just arbitrary until you say, no, this, there's enforcement with this. If you jump on the couch with your muddy shoes, you will get a spanking. And now a certain relationship has been defined. There's promises has, have been made. If you do this, I promise that I will do this. But the reverse is also true. If you do not jump on the couch with muddy shoes, you're not going to get a spanking for that, right? This is the same thing in Genesis. Already in seed form, God comes, the first words to Adam, where if you do this, you you may freely eat of all the trees, but if you eat of this tree, you will die. God made a promise, a pledge to Adam. And so Adam's relationship to God from that point on was... Was defined. It was there was a basis by which Adam could relate to God and know that he was in the right with God, and it was based on this precept. And we must say that God gave him ability to keep it. Ecclesiastes seven twenty nine says, "God made man upright, but he sought out many schemes." So, as we think about that law, then we're going to fast forward in the last fifteen minutes to the Old Testament, or sorry, to um, Mount Sinai, right? So the law that was implicit in the garden, it wasn't spelled out in all Ten Commandments, but what was implicit in the garden is then revealed on Mount Sinai to the children of Israel. So if we think about that scenario now, what we're driving at is to say when God gives this law, even though there's certain things contained in that law, which to us might seem peculiar, like um, maybe certain things regarding... Uh, Sabbath day worship or engraven images, and we say, well, I don't struggle with engraven images, We, we realize that what is being shown to us from the mount is not merely an exact detail of some arbitrary law that applied only to Israel at that time, but God is giving to them the right rule by which to live their lives, and the law of God is being pictured in the Ten Commandments. So when we think about what is the law of God, it's shorthand, it's easy to say, well, the law of God is the Ten Commandments. And while that's true, we must also realize that the law of God is something bigger and broader and more um, pervasive in scope than just what was revealed from Mount Sinai. Though Mount Sinai summarizes what God has said, and we we can see the truths in that, what we're always doing is we're peering through those Ten Commandments into what God's righteousness looks like for human beings. And so, Paragraph 2 says, the same law that was first written on the heart of man, back when Adam was created, continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall. So it didn't change, but continued on and was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments and written on two tablets, the first four containing our duty toward God and the other six our duty to man. Now, it was not my intention to get into the Ten Commandments and exposit the two tables and how they apply one to another. So my, my main goal today was just to lay a foundation of the concept that Adam had the law written on his heart. God gave him a particular precept that was a, a token of obedience or a, a pledge of, of faithfulness to, by God and Adam's faithfulness to God. They were able to meet through this one precept. And that does not mean that Adam could have then gone around and, either murdered or or stolen, and without uh, moral duty to God, but it is God held up this particular precept. So the moral law was there, it was written on the heart of Adam, it continued after the fall, the same rule of righteousness, and so when God gives this rule to the people of Israel from Mount Sinai, and he gives it to them, we say this is the standard that God has for right and wrong. That's that's just the concept, and I want to just ask if there's questions or something that's not making sense, because I and maybe that's nothing new for anyone here, but for me, putting those pieces together was helpful because I, I, just, I just never connected dots early on between the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the Ten Commandments later on and how those two things related. Um, any, any questions or any parts that might seem a little bit perplexing about what we're talking about? This is sort of just foundational material as we talk about the law of God going forward. Yeah. Yeah, your law is exceedingly broad. Yeah. Amen. Okay, well, hopefully I didn't bore you then. So it, I... Uh, I actually really like this chapter, but I think it's probably just because of a personal history where I had to work through some of these things and untangle some things. So hopefully as we go along, we can make sense of it together. I'm going to finish by reading from Psalm 119 then. I think I'm going to take a few Sunday schools to go through this topic, the law of God. Um, and each time I just want to read something from Psalm 119 to encourage us in it as we go um, Psalm 119, yep. I'm going to, I'm going to read um, in Psalm 119, starting in verse 97. I'm just going to read this section here. Psalm 119, verse 97 through 104 says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Though your pre- Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. And the reason I want to read that is because as we think about the law of God and we kind of venture into this topic, that's something that I want to keep first and foremost in our minds is that the psalmist here is saying that the law of God has become a sweet savor to him, something that he loves truly because of the wisdom and the excellence that is found there. By keeping it, he realizes that he goes beyond the aged. There's a certain wisdom that you can get by being experienced in this world, a certain wisdom you can get by being wise in this world, but it does not compare with the wisdom and the truth and the beauty of devoting yourself to the law of God to love it with your whole heart. Um, And I hope that we can show as we go along that when he talks about the law, the commandment, the precepts, these are all pointing to that one truth. This is the law of God, which... Um, We would stand condemned before if it was not for Christ, but in Christ we are freed to have this kind of a heart toward the law because it does not stand over us, but we look to it with affection and um, privilege. All right, I'll pray for us. Lord, I pray that what was said today would be helpful to your people. I pray. realize that my stammering lips and um, twisted mind sometimes is not uh, straightforward enough to help many of the clearer thinkers in the room. And so I ask that by your grace you would uh, be kind and help us to see that your law is a beautiful thing, it is a wonderful thing, and through it we see your righteousness, your beauty, we see the way that all of creation was shaped and fashioned in such a way that this law, this perfect rule of righteousness, is um, is there from the beginning. It is in uh, conjoined with creation in such a way that when we when we see your law is beautiful, we we see the truth that is um, present in the world in which we live. Our need to have a guide, a light to our feet, a lamp to our path, Lord. Um, and so while we while we oftentimes are used to seeing the law as something that uh, condemns us and something that we do not want to be under, and we resonate with that. Lord, help us also to resonate with the truth and beauty and love of your law, that we might delight in it more and more. I pray this in your name. Amen.